I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of the month. That means it's time for This Month in Birding, the panel discussion that we do at the end of every month. That also means that we go on for a while about birds, and I want to get you to that conversation as soon as possible, so I will keep things short up top. But I do have a couple of announcements to make that I want to make sure that everyone knows about. First, we're coming to the end of July, and that means we're coming to the end of our new member promo, which means that everyone who joins the American Birding Association in the month of July gets a free bag of our Songbird Coffee from Thanksgiving Coffee Company. Uh, your choice of grind, your choice of roast. We have a lot of great options. It's great coffee. It's the stuff that I drink every single morning. So definitely, if you're interested in that, go to aba.org slash coffee promo. And last, of course, we are also getting close to our ABA trip to Panama. My ticket is booked. I'm ready to go. We still have some spots available if you would like to travel with me and a group of other fun individuals to Panama this September, September 1st through September 11th. Please check that out at aba.org slash travel. Now... Without any further ado, I'm going to send you over to our panel, Nick Lund, Martha Harbison, Nicole Jackson, all talking about all sorts of cool bird stuff for the month of July, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Alert for the end of July 2022. I have three, maybe four, first records to note this week, two quite obvious, two more a little more ambiguous. Starting in Minnesota, where a broad-billed hummingbird that was a one-minute wonder at a feeder in Elk River still represents a first for that state. The homeowner had the wherewithal to pull out their phone and take some fair photos and video of the visitor before it vanished. Always nice to see homeowners making a note of unusual visitors to their feeding setups, even if the bird itself doesn't stick around. Up to Alaska, which boasted two potential state firsts this week. The first is a wedge-tailed shearwater photographed near Sitka, Alaska on the Alaska Panhandle. This is primarily a South Pacific species. There are a handful of California records. It does breed in Hawaii. There are also three Atlantic Ocean records in recent years. And the second from Alaska, a small tern near Anchorage was originally identified as an Alaska first least tern, but... Being Alaska, a potential ABA area first little turn needed to be ruled out. When the report went out, there was some uncertainty about the identification, but subsequent photos seemed to more strongly suggest the North American at least turn for this one. And a weird pale booby from Seattle, Washington would either be a state first masked or a state second Nazca. The photos are unclear. However, a Nazca booby was subsequently found and well photographed 70 miles north in Victoria, British Columbia, that province's third record. Both birds were subadult, so it is quite possible that these represent the same individual tooling around the Puget Sound. Those are the rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Welcome, everyone, to another This Month in Birding panel, this time for July 2022. It's the middle of summer, the heat of the year, and this month's panel is certainly of a piece with that. Uh, I'm excited to have this very hot panel here to talk about birds and birding news <laughs> um, in reverse alphabetical order. Uh, he is the author of the new ABA Field Guide to Maine, the second best guide in the series. Uh, you know him as the birdist. It's our friend Nick Lund. Hi, Nick. Hi. And by hot, you mean sexy for me, right? It's That's... all the all the possible uh, definitions of hot. <laughs> I am. I'm mostly the temperature one, but yeah, um... <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I hear that. And you're in Maine too. You have no excuse. Uh, yeah, we complain about low. It's fine. <laughs> um, she is the Ohio naturalist and entrepreneur behind In Her Nature, a nature therapy program for Black women. A Black Birders Week stalwart as well. It's Nicole Jackson. Hello, Nicole. Hello, hello. So happy to be here again with you all. Great to have you back. And finally, their journalist and birder with National Audubon, a galbatross, and a person who is out the door on the way to vacation, but still made time for us here, Martha Harbison. Welcome back, Martha. Thank you for having me. 
I am so uh, jealous of your upcoming vacation up to the uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, there are a lot of cool birds to be seen up there. And, uh, you know, we were talking beforehand. It sounds like you've got, uh, you are set. You're more than set to see a lot of cool stuff. What are you looking forward to most? Even though I grew up out there, I didn't start seriously birding until I moved mm-hmm. to the East Coast. So I have so many holes in my yeah. life list. Like Lewis's woodpecker, like that is oh, that's a good one too. That's one that I. So a lot of the a lot of the West Coast woodpeckers are actually kind of on our 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 target species yeah. uh, for me. Uh, oh, but cool. also the black swifts because I've never seen a black swift. Those are those are both. Uh, really excellent birds. It is it is July. It is um there's not a ton of birding going on though. You know, fall migration is on the horizon. Uh but it is the it is the month with the national holidays for both ABA area countries. Actually all three if you can't sound St. Pierre and Mickey Lawn cuz Bastille Day is in July as well. US and Canada both have their national holidays in July. And so you know, a great way to start off this conversation, what is the best national bird because as much as I love bald eagles, and as, as great as they are ambassadors for birds and birding, they're not a great national bird. They're kind of boring, actually. Maybe it's just familiarity. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, they right, are powerful enough. and impressive, um, but they're not the best. I, I You sent a list over uh, from um, Wikipedia. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Yeah, um, new place. And yeah. of all the national birds, my, I think, that, I mean, I always appreciate when, when, when there are sort of oddball, curveball uh, mm-hmm. selections. My best favorite on this list is the Hawatson from Guyana. Yeah, it's a good one. The craziest yep. cool bird. Although I want to say I was most intrigued by Denmark's entry. As far as I can tell, they are the only country that has had a national bird and then ditched it in favor of a different <laughs> bird. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with that, uh, that decision too, because it went from Eurasian Skylark, uh, a lovely bird with a fantastic song, to uh, Mute Swan. Which yeah. is, what? Eh. Yeah, I know. Well, so right? I did a little researchy. Ooh, um, I clicked one more link on Wikipedia, <laughs> but is what I mean by that. And so apparently, mute swan, they love Hans Christian Andersen over there. He wrote that ugly duckling yeah. story where a okay. mute swan was raised by, I don't even know the story, something. Mute swan is involved. And uh, so that's, so they love mute swans for that reason. But I just, uh, I feel so bad for the Skylark. Did nothing wrong, beautiful, and just, and just kicked off the flag or kicked yeah. off whatever. Denmark woke up and chose violence. They did, literally, because <laughs> mute swans are, ooh, yeah, they're, right. they're, they don't mess around. Yeah, so for mine, it's like, I actually was looking through, I was like, you know what, I'm going to pick one that I have seen and one that I haven't seen. So my favorite uh, um, national bird that I have seen is the Scarlet Ibis. A good um, one. For Trinidad. Uh, and the one that I haven't seen, even though I've been in its range, I just was never able to get my eyes on one, is the Andean Condor. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm, that's a good one. I would say I saw the golden eagle pop up a lot, and that's one bird that I've wanted to see for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I don't know, their action in the air is is pretty intense. Um, Have you ever seen that YouTube video of the golden eagle like knocking a yeah. ibex calf like off a cliff? It's yeah. pretty. Unbelievable. Terrifying. It is deservedly terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, and then also the other one I was thinking of was Harpy Eagle, which is another one I would be thrilled to see yeah. in the wild. Yeah, big raptor. I, fan. I think I, I hear that they're pretty elusive, but I'm they not can 100% be percent sure about for, that. For a bird as large as they are, um, they can yeah. be it's very difficult to see. <laughs> I was looking at some other bad ones too. I love looking at bad ones. I always think in my head that like whatever you know, legislator was running into the committee to sign the national. He just like forgot until that day and then looked outside. <laughs> the British Virgin Islands have mourning dove, which Ooh, I feel like is the worst, right. most basic choice, very pedestrian possible for any yeah. national bird. Uh, There's some pretty wild ones laugh. on this list, though. Like uh, I would not have expected uh, bare-throated bellbird. Mm. to be held in such high regard in Paraguay. It's official. Mm. It's official even. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the ones that the bird is actually on the flag. Mm-hmm. So right. for like Uganda's uh, crown crane. Despite the two that I actually said, I personally love the understated one. So I would be a fan of the morning dove as a national right. bird. It's some just morning like, dove love it's, here. You know, you're just whatever. It's like, give me, a, it's, give me a hug. You make beautiful noises. I was just looking at <laughs> Costa Rica's. It's the clay colored thrush. Yeah, famously. Give you a hug. Yeah. Are you gonna hug it, the dove? Yeah, why not? <laughs> they're they're very fluffy. I don't allowed. know if you've ever held a morning yeah, look, dove. They're all feathers. They're very plush. Thing. 
just you gotta put a little more effort into it than that. You just just scratch your belly and look around and be like, all right, what's that bird? Morning dove, let's go with that. So for Papua New Guinea, it's the Rajiana bird of paradise, which uh, makes a ton of sense. And also it's also on the flag. So there you just go. To keep the birds on flags theme going. Was, I like that. I like when they do that. Like when they go all out. I think overall know, it's a pretty good, li- pretty good list. I was I was impressed. Only no one complaints. Yeah, maybe there's more than one, but the France has uh, a dumb rooster. But only other than that, <laughs> there's not a lot of you know. There are two roosters as state birds in the U.S., which I yeah not continually good. roll my eyes at. I like the doctor bird in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, it's the the streamer tail hummingbird. Yeah, and um the one of the one of the basketball players on the on the Charlotte Hornets team that I, I cheer for has like a big he's from Jamaica so he has like a Dr. Bird tattooed on his shoulder. Awesome. Uh, it's Nick That's Richards. Rad, it's actually yeah. really cool. It's one of the, one of the better tattoos in the NBA. That's another awesome. list we can I've never yeah. seen that. <laughs> I noticed that Uruguay also woke up and chose violence. Um anybody who's ever interacted with a southern lapwing. So loud. So loud. It's appropriate it's considering that's like the first bird you see when you land in Montevideo <laughs> airport because they yeah. hang out on the on the on the tarmac there. Yeah, for those who haven't like interacted with that bird, it's basically like a kill deer with knives. Yeah. Um <laughs> And it was extremely territorial. So it's like you just, and so you're wandering just on a, you know, in a park somewhere. And this like, it's like, and this t- and relatively tiny black and white bird just like looks at you. And it's like, <laughs> it's on. Yeah, they've got those spurs And they do have spurs yeah. on their wings. And so they're coming to stab you. Um, yeah, Southern lap wings are great. I love respect, them. Respect, respect. Wait, so is it, the, yeah. is it the locking eyes that gets them? Maybe yeah. so. Yeah. Any bird that makes eye contact with you is a little, it's going to put you off. Yeah. It's going down. Okay. I heard one flew a plane to Michigan too. Yeah. Amazing. Who knows? I mean, they can do anything, honestly. Yeah. I think every national bird should be the Southern Lapwing. <laughs> Just taking over. Yeah. There's a um, article in the Atlantic that was published about woodpeckers and the assumption that there's this shock absorption that's happening with the brain because they have the spongy part of the, the bone that's protecting their brain from having damage or concussion. And it turns out that it's false, um, that it's not shock absorption. And the more you think about it, the more or the less it makes sense because that they actually hadn't realized that uh, they actually needed, you know, if you're comparing it to hammering a nail, you're not putting something soft um, on the hammer before you hammer the nail, which you, if you're hitting a nail, you're hitting a nail, like with the same amount of force. Um, And it's the same with woodpeckers when they're pecking into the wood, they actually don't need that absorption or quote unquote helmet to protect themselves. They can actually um, not get damage uh, from hitting it as hard and fast as they do and realizing that, the science that we've always heard of, whether it's in a display or in an article or in a research um, paper, um, that these things aren't being tested. Also, it's connected to um, anthropomorphism, thinking about it as if, you know, if we were banging our heads the way woodpeckers do, (laughs) it would make sense to put on a helmet so we're not um, getting concussions. It's interesting how, I don't know, I think it's easier for us to have that anthropomorphism lens because <laughs> yeah. there's so much stuff that we still don't know in terms of how wildlife engage and um, the purpose of why, why they're doing what they're doing uh, out in nature. And I, I just feel like that's like, we have to take a, a step back sometimes and really like think about the science more than our feelings and <laughs> um <laughs> it making the most sense for us to like wrap our heads around. So yeah, my, my favorite quote came from, I don't know if this was in the, or the Atlantic article or um, some other article that was related to the, that covered this. It was pretty widely, this, this topic was pretty widely covered, but it was came from uh, Van Wassenberg and he's like, we forget that woodpeckers are considerably smaller yes. than humans. The br- like, the do, brains. We? <laughs> do we? <laughs> the brains are so small. They're so tiny. Yeah. And that's essentially the secret, right? It's just that smaller things don't build up as much force, so they aren't injured the same way. It's like, oh, okay. Yes, these aren't massive pterodactyl (laughs) birds. Yeah, right? They're not human-sized birds. I mean, in their own minds, they are. Let's not forget that. Yeah, there you go. 
Fair enough. Yeah. I, for one, am glad that there aren't human-sized woodpeckers out there. You know, <laughs> almost as you know? terrifying. Yeah, yeah almost as terrifying as human-sized hummingbirds. We would never be able to build any. No. Which bird? This is off. The, which bird would you least like to be human-sized? Which do you think would be the most terrifying? Well, that lapwing you just mentioned. Yeah, I was like, it's actually really similar to some of those like paleolithic right. terror birds that uh, from the fossil yeah, record. Yeah, like Haas seagull and those New Zealand birds that used to kill moas and probably early folks who got yeah, there. Yeah, right. Probably humans. <laughs> I mean, a, a, humming, a giant-sized hummingbird bill through the heart would not be great. You know, not, not be great. Not be great. No. Anyway. I think a lot about, you know, we get a lot of naturalists get questions from folks who are like, I have a woodpecker who's drumming on my, you know, uh, he's on my siding. He's on my house. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And uh, I now I'm just picturing a giant human sized woodpecker. Just just maybe they can be harnessed for for, uh, revisions. Uh, Yeah. uh, Renovations and carpentry. It's better than like a jackhammer. Yeah. It sounds like they're pretty big, though, when they're doing that, when they're doing the drumming. Some of Especially them. if you're not yeah. familiar with woodpeckers, you're like, what is this massive thing <laughs> on the side of my house? It's pretty amazing how good they are at finding like resonant surfaces to make themselves sound bigger than they really are. Like I've seen medium-sized woodpeckers like red-bellied woodpecker or hairy woodpecker go to like the top of a hollow tree and just wail on it. And it sounds like it's massive. Hmm. It sounds like it's huge. But, you know, it's a... Eight and eight yeah, and nine inch an ivory build. That's right. Double knocks. <laughs> Only listen to two of them. Evidence is out there now. <laughs> uh, Nicole, one thing that you mentioned that really like drew me in is uh, the you know basically the natural human bias to uh, anthropomorphize and yeah. to impose our own feelings and thoughts on a situation or birds this is something we see in the galbatross project a lot um Mm -hmm. for those who don't know the galbatross project we're focusing on how to all the different ways that you can find and appreciate female birds and so for a lot of species that are monomorphic so the males and females look the same one of the ways you can tell them apart is by their behaviors and so many people are just like it's taking care of babies it definitely has to be a female <laughs> and it's yeah. just like i hate to break it to you <laughs> but it's like it's a it's a it's a very typical thing for people to do and so it it takes a lot for a person to like step out of their biases yes mm-hmm. and uh be able to embrace the bird on its own terms as opposed yeah. to ours. I wonder what the birds would be thinking of just rolling their eyes of like these humans. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Totally that. not it. That's not it at all. <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting that this whole, like it's a myth essentially that they mm-hmm. have this shock absorbing thing in their head and how that myth informed, like, I guess useful, maybe yes. useful human shock absorbing helmets, or at least helmets that do a better job of that. It's, it's wild how, uh, this thing that's not even true <laughs> inspired our, right. uh, like a useful, I don't know how useful they are. Maybe they're not all that useful now that we're, mm-hmm. well, we know this, um, this, uh, this useful invention. Biomimicry based on lies. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, we also conserve land because we thought ivory bills were there too. So there's another example. <laughs> really hitting the ivory bill stuff hard. Then, are you trying to br- draw minds. me out? Yeah. It's, on, it's on the mind. So do you, would you just ditch that all together then? Like, oh, we were creating these helmets and like now it's all a lie. So like, yeah, just. Well, do they work? Like, even if it's I don't not, know. That's a question. I guess they like, work a little yeah. bit, but I don't know, like the whole idea of shock absorbing helmets. I mean, the reason that the whole process works with woodpeckers because woodpeckers are smaller than humans. We're talking about a human sized brain and a human sized right. skull. Like even a shock absorbing helmet isn't going to be, isn't going to solve all the problems that physics causes in that sort of situation i wonder if there's like a football player out there with like a helmet that looks like a woodpecker's head who's reading this being like ah yeah come on come on it's all a lie he throws it across the room oh, essentially you'd have to shrink your head like or your brain like that's yeah just, right that's the idea really... that's the real inspiration yeah let's do it let's right. pursue that. sign me yeah. up yeah <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves ravens. They're pretty rad. Um, But on the East Coast, where I live, they uh, were extirpated back in the late 19th century because of uh, widespread development Uh, in the Midwest, where they were also found a lot. They were basically shot and extirpated that way, also because of the bison herds being uh, decimated. And so 
birders growing up, a lot of the birders that we know that are a little bit older, like they almost never encountered ravens. It was like, you look at all the range maps of ravens and even mm-hmm. you look at range maps today that are on like eBird and in most of our field guides don't actually, um, they basically show that's like they're very, they're uncommon in the Appalachian mountains. And then they really don't become common until you get up into where Nick lives, basically, you know, Maine and, and Canada. Uh, out West, the situation is a little bit different. As it turns out, like ravens are now recolonizing a lot of their previously extirpated um, areas. And now where I live in Brooklyn, we have like 10 pairs of uh, nesting ravens that until about two years ago kept on getting flagged as rare in eBirds. So it'd be like every time <laughs> I'm like, going bird and be like i've got to write a note because the ravens that i see here every time i come birding at this cemetery or hear them are you know it's still being flagged as as rare uh so people are watching this very this this range expansion on the in the east and also the proliferation of ravens out on the basically in the interior west in particular are watching this um very very closely on the east coast to see like what does you know the recolonization look like and the paper uh that was published recently is really about uh ravens in central in the central appalachian mountains and they basically they basically ask the question of are ravens detectable it's like are they rare because we can't find them or are they rare because there's not that many of them mm-hmm. and are and are their numbers increasing? The question is really about how do we monitor this species as it's recolonizing the areas? And the paper like basically answered like ravens are very easy to find. If they're there, you will know it and you will know it, it within 30 minutes. Um, yeah. And so then the paper really goes into talking about like nesting frequencies and how to find, uh, if you know where some ravens are nesting, you should also look at all the other cliffs around there because there are probably hidden ravens in the mm-hmm. cliffs as well, which I thought was hidden fascinating. ravens because... in the cliffs. Yeah, that's yeah. a heavy metal <laughs> album name right there. <laughs> my sto- ravens in the cliffs. Exactly. That's my stoner doom band that I'm yeah. starting like over vacation. Iron Maiden lyric. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and out west, of course, it's like what they're really worried about is because a lot, basically, the proliferation of ravens is really putting pressure on a lot of in, other endangered species, their prey species, um, yeah. like greater sage grouse. Yeah, and exactly. uh, I think it's the painted desert tortoise and things like that. Um, so anyway, uh, I think it's really fascinating that people are like really watching these birds. Um, for me, like the really cool thing is a birder and somebody who's like into bird science is like realizing just how out of date all of the information that birders and especially new birders um, encounter about ravens suggests that you're never going to see one because it's Mm -hmm. super rare. It shows that they don't even exist in New Jersey or really even in New York. And it's like, if I go to my own personal, you know, checklists from the last couple of years under any of those areas that are like, or even if you just look at eBird at the, at the sighting data, they're everywhere. And so I think that one of the cool things that we can talk about, you know, as nature educators and like really talking with new birders is like how change happens and how sometimes what you see in the book is not actually accurate Um, and be able to ask the question like, okay, well, why are they coming back? Is it because of there's fewer pesticides in the environment. Uh, One theory Mm -hmm. with the, with the New York Ravens or the the East coast Ravens in particular, which I, I was chatting with my friends about this yesterday and we're not sure whether it's actually been borne out with research was West Nile virus, like extirpated a lot of the crow, basically fish and um, American crow populations. And so the ravens came in and were able to um, basically um, populate those empty niches um, and then basically reestablish themselves. So it's like, yes. So they needed the destabilization event of West Nile virus in order to actually make the colonization happen whether or not that's actually been tested i don't know um but anyway so i thought the i was like i thought the paper was really cool and i love the fact that people are really thinking about how do we monitor ravens to see you know like what this what do these dynamics look like they are still like relatively i meet people every day it's like i've never seen a raven and i'm like Oh baby, come out burden with me. <laughs> yeah, we'll find some. <laughs> I'll find you a raven. Um, we'll find many of them, and they will they will also make eye contact with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly steal your it's possibly steal your lunch. That's right, for sure. It's funny because this this mirrors a little bit what we see in the southeast too, where I live. Um, yeah, ravens somewhat they breed up in the higher elevations of the southern Appalachians in the western part of North Carolina, and they've been like coming east 
pretty regularly and reliably over the last 20, 30 years. Um, I see them every once in a while where I live in the Western Piedmont. When I lived in the Triangle in Chapel Hill, we'd see them every once in a while. Just this past winter, someone photographed a raven on the Outer Banks, which 30 years ago would have been unheard of, completely unheard of. And actually, when I heard it, I was like, no way. And then I saw the photo and it's like, freaking raven. (laughs) And um, it's 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 absolutely wild how they're sort of reclaiming, I guess, this lost territory in in some cases, even like moving into new territory. territory, yeah. Yeah, because they're just so good at that yeah although it's you know. terrifying because they are apex predators you know i think they're huge it's like people they're don't very re- big. yeah number one they're huge uh if you've never seen a raven before they're the size of a red-tailed hawk they are the size enormous of, yeah. and it's really so when you see like oh it's a big it's a big black bird maybe it's a raven they're like no 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 when you see a raven you're like damn that's an enormous black bird <laughs> yeah um, exactly uh it's it's going to be another competition pressure on a lot of the a lot of the other species that we have um in areas where they're either recolonizing or yeah. uh, expanding into. You think about ravens on the Outer Banks, you like immediately think of, well, the sea turtles have issues mm. with crows already and raccoons and foxes and stuff like that. Well, do they need another giant apex predator that right. can, you know, tear through a sea turtle nest or babies as they're hatching? Yeah, yeah probably or, not. Yeah, or any but, of the beach nesting you know. birds. You're thinking like least, yeah. least turn, I mean, like American clover, all that oyster stuff. catchers, yep. things like that. Mm. Like. You know that can be that can be a challenge, even though the birds are super awesome. I yeah. do not want yep. to <laughs> suppress yep. that as well. Absolutely. So I wonder if that prevents people from paying attention to things because, like this, the guides and you know some of the outdated information, or even the belief that what they're looking at is set in stone. And it's really not. It's very fluid. Yeah, so it's like because they're honed in on that, it prevents them from seeing and noticing other things that are mm-hmm. are present. Hmm. I don't know if, oh, I think how, how any time. of you feel yeah. about that, but yeah, no, I I totally agree with you. That that happens. You know, people don't think something's possible, and you know, maybe we'll do Ivory Bill Woodpecker reference here. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, it's it's a little bit different, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I, and I see actually sometimes the flip side, which is that. You know, in Maine, we have a lot of publicity around our vagrant birds. And so oh, yep. people tend to sort of ignore range maps pretty readily um, because they're like, well, if that bird from Russia showed up or that bird from Central America showed up, then, then anything could show up. And so part of educating new birders is being like, you know, there are exceptions, but generally the range maps right. are pretty good. Like mm-hmm. use that as a guide. And if you are looking at a bird in your backyard, don't start with the the west coast ones start with yeah. possibilities from the east coast don't start with southern lapwing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless you're in michigan <laughs> that's the perspective that i'm coming from as a, a, a new birder or beginner birder who's yeah. just like yeah i don't even know where to start as far as having resources to utilize with identifying and like i feel like that stuff is so like it seems so complex and complicated to be like, okay, I need mm. to get a, a field guide and look at a range map yeah. and, you know, these different variations. It seems very overwhelming, but at the same time, I feel like that takes them out of that space to just explore and, and witness what's in their mm. yard. And I feel like with crows, I see crows all the time, but to me, they're massive. I'm like, what are they eating? Like, they're I don't understand you what see they're a eating. Raven. Right. Until you see a raven and you're just like, whoa, I was totally. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Nicole, I think you bring up a really good point. You know, when it comes to like beginner birders and I mean, even like when people ask me, like, what do I need to bird? I'm like eyes and ears right. and, a wind- and a window. You don't need yeah. binoculars. You don't need a. You don't need a book. You don't need mm-hmm. any of that. You need your observational skills and you don't even need yeah. all of them. Like if you right. have visual, like a vision processing, you know, challenge, you like listen instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that it's like vitally important to, you know, when we talk about like, okay, like, yes, there are like, there, there are books, there are range maps, whatever. It's like, there, the, these are just tools. Um, mm-hmm. And that really, at least for me, birding is about the, about being, basically being in community with the natural world and we're here like we're all in this on this lovely little marble in space um Mm -hmm. and that that authority doesn't need to dictate what that interaction that even though it's mostly like an intellectual interaction but it's like it doesn't need to dictate what that interaction looks like yeah Yeah. one of the things i really like about birding is that yeah there is this sort of 
inherent skepticism with all this stuff. You know, a certain amount of skepticism is healthy just in Mm -hmm. general in your life, no matter what you're doing. But that skepticism and birding is kind of tempered with this openness to just about anything happening because we've seen some pretty incredible things happen. So it's like, yeah, I I may not believe this, but all right, I'll, I'll give it a chance. I'll give it a chance. You know, you're not completely closing yourself off to these opportunities uh, because, you know, when you're a birder, you've seen some crazy stuff. Yeah. That's actually what I love about it. You're just like, you're just like, okay, well, probably it's this one thing, but it's like, I want to believe. Yeah. (laughs) And and there we have some, you know, we've all had experiences where it hasn't been. So I think it's that that openness to uncertainty is one of the hardest things for, for new birders to get accustomed to because it's not uh, common to all hobbies. And Mm -hmm. it's something that you get more comfortable with as the better birder you come become, you know, understanding that you may not have seen all that you needed to see on that bird that was zipping by, or, you know, maybe I can't describe the bird that you are describing to me uh, that you saw on your feeder. Um, not having an answer and being okay with that is hard. It's yeah. against our instinct, um, yeah. but it's yeah. an essential part of birding. Yeah, I yeah. love that, like, even common birds will confound you. Yes. I've yes. seen 5,000 <laughs> black-capped chickadees, and I, and this one bird, which I, th- it's, but it's just not quite there, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or if that Something happens off, migration. always. Yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah. and somebody's yeah. got to sit with it. You're like, you know what? I may never know. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. You can get more skilled, but the, uh, the proportion of mi- birds you cannot identify never gets to zero. Right. Yeah. Never gets to zero. I feel like there's yeah. this false sense of confidence too in having, I there guess, be. a beginner <laughs> birder. <laughs> um, and like having those things, like the binoculars and the field guide, it makes you, it's, it's comforting, but you may still not like, you're still like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like I have these yeah. things, but I still don't know, you know, what I'm looking at. And then realizing there's different types of guides, different types of binoculars. So like in my, I guess, beginning of my bird watching exploration, learning journey, I felt like. I needed to have those things as a comfort of like, if I look more official or sure. look that like, that, you know, I look know the part, things, feel the part. <laughs> people won't ask me as many questions, but people would ask me more things. Cause I thought I was blending in. I thought I was blending in and I'm like, Nope, this isn't working. Yeah. But a lot of it came from just people watching, like watching the experts and like, you know, cause they have their quirks and their like ways of yeah. tuning into things. And they're just like, okay, I just need to find my own rhythm and, you know, just being still and present. You just got to trust yeah. the process. Yeah. Trust the process. <laughs> I, this is a reintroduction story. This is a good story. I love these stories. Um, not because I love birds almost going extinct or anything almost going extinct, but I love the sort of, I love the narrative of human existence as doing so many terrible things to the earth and still doing them. But in some cases, turning around before it's too late. I I think of like a plane diving towards the earth and sometimes it crashes, but other times we just (laughs) yank back on that lever and it it soars back up just in time. And this Spix's Macaw story from science written by Ian Kupferschmidt uh, is about that. Um, Spix's Macaw is a gorgeous blue, large parrot that lives in, that is native to Brazil. It is, uh, has always been rare so folks think, um, and became increasingly rare as uh, its habitat was turned into, was was destroyed. And as so often happens with beautiful parrots, um, uh, poachers just took them, took them out of the wild. Parrot uh, piracy and, and parrot poaching is a huge, crazy worldwide issue that involves all these motley characters like sheiks in foreign countries and um, you know, German dignitaries. It's it's a very odd world, but it has real done real damage to all kinds of macaws and other parrots around the world. Um, Spix's macaw was down to one bird in the wild in the mid nineties. Uno, one bird, one left, and then zero left in the wild. And uh, but because sort of, uh, and this is partly why the story is interesting because of the overlapping worlds of legal and illegal here, 
because there were so many birds illegally taken out of the wild and kept in captivity at places around the world. And by so many, I don't mean that very many, but but a hundred or so. Um, there is a population to potentially be brought back and reintroduced in the wild. And that's what they're planning on doing in Brazil right now. Um, this guy, Martin Guth from Germany, who himself served time in prison and is accused of selling birds illegally, um, has sort of fought his way through the Spix's Macaw rehabilitation and re-release recovery world, um, which it's itself is fraught with big egos and uh, and controversy and has managed to get them to a place where they're about to reintroduce um, 20 birds back into the wild. These will be the first wild flying Spix's Macaws in like 30 years. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it could work. They are learning a lot of lessons from other parrot reintroductions. They're introducing a bunch of birds at once, um, uh, eight and 12, I think, you know, batches, which can help them, you know, they're social birds and they can uh, figure out the, the dangers around them. They're releasing them with uh, uh, birds of another species, macaws of another species that also inhibits the same habitat. And um, so may help them sort of uh, find their footing a little bit better. Um, so, you know, it's a story of hope and they've, they've, they just skimmed the ground in this airplane. They just, they felt the grass on the fuselage and now they are potentially going skyward again, whether or not it works. I'm, I like stories like this because there are people out there who are on the edge, who are, who, who stand between a species going extinct and not, and they may not be the greatest people. You don't get to necessarily choose the ones you want, but but they are people nonetheless, and they are out there working hard to um, try to make sure that this beautiful bird doesn't go extinct. And so um, I, I wish them all the best. Yeah, this is a wild story, just because of the characters involved. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, Johann Baptiste von Spix, not a great dude, bad dude, probably could stand to get that bird's name changed. Not a great guy. No, but uh, even up to the future, um, this whole you know, parrot trade and illegal bird market and how Spix's Macaw was sort of found in this whole world uh, when everyone thought they were extinct in the wild. And uh, As you say, Nick, I don't know if it'll work. Who knows? It's certainly better off now than they were 30 years ago. Yep. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a trip, <laughs> this whole thing. <laughs> You know, and we, you know, we need stories of hope these days and yeah. we need long shots it. and we need take it. folks working out there. You know, the flip side is it can work. I mean, every successful reintroduction story has happened from people recognizing the terrible things we've done and then trying to reverse course. Uh, it's not maybe natural. It's not easy, but that's how things do get done. Um, and so uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, one of the things that's wild to me is, and Nick, you you mentioned it a little bit, is like the success or failure of a lot or of some of these, I won't say a lot, but some of these reintroduction programs really comes down to the egos of a of a couple <laughs> of of people, or just maybe not even egos, opinions of people. Um, I edited a story a few years ago about the Florida grasshopper sparrow, and mm -hmm. at the time there were 20 of them left or something like that. It was right before that they were doing the reintroductions because they were still figuring out how to, how to breed them in captivity. And just like the, all of the different opinions swirling around this particular, this particular sparrow and whether or not they should introduce it. But it really came down to it's like, the species is going to, is going to live or die by like the opinions of 20 people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's kind yeah. of crazy. There's one anecdote in the story about one of the uh, an earlier meeting about um, Spix Macaw recovery, where a, a bunch of folks in Brazil and some other sort of um, folks who held birds in captivity came together to try to figure out what they could do. And there was a lot of egos and there was a lot of disagreement and things like that. And it ended with one of the organizers being like, hey, we're all criminals around this table. We all, <laughs> anyone who holds a, a Spix Macaw is a criminal because you can't take them out of the wild. And so, uh, and that meeting didn't even end well because uh, <laughs> that's not the foot they wanted to get off. But it's true that this is a this is a motley crew, but but it's who you get, you know? Yeah. And the plot thickens. 
<laughs> yeah, the for plot sure. Is so it's like a war and peace, but it's it's as thick you as you should make a movie about candy. this. Yeah. yeah. I love the also I love the detail about of releasing the macaws with other macaw species. Um because other birds that I know, like other macaws that have d- gone through this reintroduction process, they do this thing where they built these aviaries in the middle of the forest. And I went and saw one a few years ago. Yeah. And, and I had to sign an agreement that I would never release the actual like location of the <laughs> aviary yeah. because poachers go and steal them all. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, there was like $100,000 worth of parrot like flying around my head. And it was like, wow. Uh, but anyway, but they keep them there because they want other parrots or other macaws to come in and interact with the birds hmm. that are in the aviary and teach yeah. them how to be macaws yeah and how to forage and there's like a very specific process that you go through to introduce um these highly intelligent birds back into the it's like back into an ecosystem it's not just like it's not like we just like have a box of them you just like chuck them in the air it's like there's this huge <laughs> like a magician with pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> yay let's go <laughs> like there's like a, and there's and a lot of that knowledge is hard won with a lot yeah. Of, oh yeah with a lot of failures behind it it reminds me of the Puerto Rican parrot mm-hmm. uh, story. It's really similar. They've done similar things with the Puerto Rican parrot as well. They tried to do it with a thick-billed parrot in um, Southeast Arizona many years ago. Um, they had problems with uh, goshawks with those because the goshawks would figure out where the birds were being mm-hmm. released from, and they'd just hang around and pick them off one by one. Very unfortunate. But, you know, as you say, hard-won knowledge, like stuff that you, you know, it, it takes time to learn. And, and especially with these highly social, highly intelligent birds where that have essentially like a bird culture, like the stuff that they need to know is passed yeah. down from generation to generation of bird. And if you lose a generation, you have to learn that stuff all over again. And that is hard to do. It's hard to do for humans, really hard to do for birds too. And, and though it's hard one, there's no room for error, right? There's, right. there's one bird left. And so you, you can't, uh, you know, you need to learn and, and, and have successes and failures, but you know, too many failures means complete failure. Uh, yeah. So yep. it's terrifying, but I'm I'm so glad that there are people out there doing it. When you say that when a generation is lost, it's hard for that. Like, I'm sorry, I'm like processing this as you're saying. No, no, no. So like, do the birds with the birds know as far as being with another species of like macaw? Like, do they know, okay, this bird isn't like us? Like it's been through some stuff. Like we're we're gonna go into teacher <laughs> mode. Like, hmm. how does that work? Like, I wonder. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm in human mode right now. But like, I just wonder. Like, if that's like something you can just tap into. They tap into of like just teaching. Like, for My in order for them to survive, it's sort of taught through observation. Like mm-hmm. young birds or naive birds watch experienced birds and then essentially learn how to do it. I don't know mm-hmm. if the birds that know how to do it are actually consciously doing it. They might be. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about bird cognition and parrot right. cognition. But for the most part, I think that they sort of, you know, they observe how to find things. And, you know, parrots are just super good at that. Um, they're super social anyway. If there are no spixes macaws out there to teach them, like who, who's the next yeah. best thing? Um, I guess another parrot species, but every bird has its own specific niche. And, and what are they missing? You just don't know what they're missing. Yeah, because that's what I'm wondering. Like, are they just learning the hab- the habits or the behaviors of this other species versus what they are instinctively supposed to be? Yeah, I don't know. That's that's the problem with these rewilding efforts. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's not ideal, but they are. But it is what it is. This other species, Illigers macaw, also known as the blue-winged macaw, apparently lives in a you know has a larger range than um spixes but also lives in the same this katinga habitat yeah i think ideally they would have a bunch of other spixes out there to to show them what's what but um you know again you got to deal with what you got in front of you yeah and parrots do mix and match in that way to a certain extent so there's there's use there's use for that yeah so fingers crossed fingers crossed wings crossed yes Wings crossed. <laughs> That's terrible. The birds are I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> All right, we'll go to the question of the month. There was this really cool article that came out in Neuroscience News that basically, it's about memory and expert bird watchers and does having expert knowledge help you memorize new knowledge? I don't know if they quite ask the right question. Alvaro Jaramillo has some interesting thoughts on it on his Facebook wall. People want to check that out. I'll have the link to that as well. But it got me thinking essentially about how do you acquire new knowledge as a birder and essentially what 
your brain does when it's trying to identify a bird, be it a familiar bird or a new bird. I thought it might be kind of an interesting question to talk a little bit about how, how you think your brain works when you're birding. To me, I've often thought of birding in terms of like language fluency or um, ability to play an instrument uh, really well. You know, when I see a bird and I try to identify it, it's not like a conscious identification. Like, especially with common birds, it's just sort of like an immediate connection in my in my mind that takes in all this information and spits out a bird name. Uh, and even it works to some extent when I see new birds as well. Like if I'm birding in a new place, there's a little bit longer of a lag when I'm trying to make these connections. But I do try to put the birds in the right bird-shaped holes in my head, if that makes any sort of sense, um, when I try and identify them. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about how you approach birding in a new place or birding in a regular place and how your brain likes to likes to identify birds. I, I, I really think that it's just experience. I mean, I think, uh, I don't think I learn, I'm learning more now. I think I've got a zillion reps on yeah. <laughs> on it. Really. I, I think, I think it's practice and not, I don't know the difference between learning and, and practice, but I feel the same way when I go to a new, say I were to wake up in a new place. I didn't know any of the birds. I could, I could tell which ones were warblers and which ones were corvids and which ones were without knowing anything, but that's not learning. That's just my experience. Um, yeah. It's like recognition maybe. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I guess I, I don't, this article talks about learning things about rare coins and things. And I don't think that would work for me at all. I mean, my, my no. mind is generally terrible. I'm terrible at learning things, <laughs> terrible at names, terrible. It's the bane of my existence. I wish I had a good memory, but I don't. But, but because of repetition, I can get it for birds. I don't think that my brain is, has improved in a way that's applicable to other things. If without that same experience, <laughs> that's just, that's just the truth. So sorry, scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, it's interesting you brought up uh, Alvaro's uh, thoughts because um, I had read them. I'm going to find them again. Yeah, it's like I had read them, uh, and a lot of what he said kind of resonated with me. Um, because, yeah, it's like I'm not sure that it's like I do a lot of memorization. Um, I think mm -hmm. that for me, even though it happens instantaneously with with the with very with with species with familiar species, to me, it's always like it's essentially an extremely fast um, flowchart. It's just like yeah. habitat, bird size, blah, blah, blah. And it's like this whole cascade of like that you, it, but you know, for, uh, again, for like a black cap chickadee, it's like, I'm taking all of that in and all that information in at once and it all, and it just all collapse, the waveform collapses to black cap chickadee. Whereas yeah. like when I go out and I'm birding somewhere unusual, like say I'm going to Central America, to a Central American country where I'm not familiar with like the bajillion tanagers, you know, or. I look at the habitat, I look at the shape of the bird, I look at the bill shape, I look at the, you know, and it's like, it's, it's essentially doing that same flow chart process, but much slower. Um, I am not memorizing any of that. Those are just like, those are essentially memory frameworks or memory framework, um, mm -hmm. or it's a process framework that, um, I'm just getting better at. So it's more like muscle memory. You're just like, yeah, okay, I'm practicing. So it's like practice. I'm practicing enough and I practice it enough that, for the things I do often, it's fast. For the things that I don't do that often, it's a little bit slower, but it's the same thing. And then like yeah. what Alvaro had mentioned, uh, which is something I've experienced as well, is when you're learning, uh, learning your first learning your first second language or whatever learning a second language is a huge lift. You're just like, yeah. I don't know what's going on. And yeah, okay, I like had English at school, but it's like parts of speech. Who knows? You know, <laughs> yeah. adverb. That's great. Yeah. Um, what is that? But it's like so when I learned my the second language, I was like, I, I spent a lot of time, spent years getting good at it. But when I learned the third language, I was like, I know exactly what I need to do it's in easier. order yeah. to to master this third language. And now that I'm on my fourth, it's just like let's just plug it in. You know. <laughs> I mean, and there's a lot of stuff that you have to learn in a language in order to make it functional. And there is memorization there. But yeah. again, it's a it's a process where I'm like, I need to know, like, this is what verbs do. This is what, you know, these are nouns and pronouns. This is how things are modified. And this is what stru sentence structure looks like. And then you practice enough that then it becomes 
an intuitive process as opposed to like every single step of a gear in a large machine. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's an interesting point where you talked about the the framework because I I do kind of feel like that's how my brain works too. And when I'm in a place where I don't recognize the birds, that framework will, will work up to a point, and then it will just like spit out an error. <laughs> it's like, like nope, don't know what this is. Yeah, well, everything pull, after that. That's when you yeah. pull out your apps, your field that's when you guide, pull the book. and you're just like, yeah, okay, exactly. well, I'm pretty sure that it's one of these five <laughs> species. I, I got then... I got hung up at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But which I think is fascinating because you're like, okay, yeah. now I'm like looking at how like. Um, interesting evolution is like i know that it's in this family of birds but you know who knows um anyway that's my thoughts on it how about you nicole you, you talked about being sort of uh towards the beginning of your journey how does how does your brain want to help you identify birds well i matched it with my personality <laughs> <laughs> of just being an introvert like just don't say anything don't do anything just look just listen and like observe um, just because I do that with people just to really like absorb as much information as I can. And then mm-hmm. sometimes I'll do something with that information right away to come to a conclusion. And then other times I'll just make note of it and then come back to it. But like, it's a, I'm thinking of systems. So when I, so I took a trip to South Dakota for the first time back in June and I was super excited to bird, even though I didn't know what I was going to see. And I remember looking at there was a site that we went to and a gray jay I think was one of the birds and the name and then seeing the bird did not match up in my head because in my mind I'm like okay it's gonna look like a a blue jay that I would typically see it's just gonna be gray (laughs) but then it's like no this looks like a a chickadee and a jay sort of put together it's so like that's yeah so it's just like (laughs) what how am i even supposed to make sense of what the name is versus what it actually looks like so like there's bits and pieces of information where i'm like okay this totally makes sense based off the name and then other times it's just like yeah no (laughs) so the names can really get you hung up sometimes yeah so i think (laughs) for me like i i try to take away the name like just and then look at the behavior, but more so like there's other things, there's things that are going to happen that you're just like, I just don't want to give energy to this. Cause I feel like I'm just going to wreck my brain <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> trying to figure out like that in that moment, what that thing is without it being like the experience, like going back into like being engulfed in the experience mm-hmm. to create a, enough of a memory for you to want to go back and like add to what you know versus like i don't know what that is like it's stupid i don't need to know about it ever because i'm a <laughs> like i i want to have an experience where i'm just like i'm intrigued enough to where i'm like oh now i can go back and like you know look it up or like use an app or a field guide yeah. and it, it's create it's solidifying that knowledge in a different way if that makes sense it is funny what sticks with you uh, yeah. in those experiences and what what you can add to your framework in sort of a unique way that makes it work for you as opposed to how it doesn't work for somebody else. Right. You know, different memories hit different ways and people have, people will use different things to identify birds that they other, that may be completely foreign to me. I don't know. I feel like people will kind of create their own rhythm, even though they're like, yeah, I want to know how you did this thing, but then they're still finding their own comfort to do that to where it's not like oh i'm learning from someone and it doesn't it's not relatable or it doesn't click with me so i can't repeatedly do this yeah martha did you learn the languages before you learned birds or what because i'm interested in whether i don't know any languages at all and that that framework that you talk about where it gets easier the more you do i mean it sounds so crazy and daunting to me but i wonder if that helped you learn birds at all which is sort of its own language. uh that's a great question first of all you do know one language because we're using it <laughs> but sure. the, barely that's debatable yeah <laughs> yeah sometimes i feel like i can't even use english I'm like, right. why am i yeah. writer me english good um <laughs> the um that's a great question um no i would say that the, so the language came even though i was a birder when i was younger i would say this more like a serious type of birding that I do these days, more systematic and just deeper, uh, came after the came after the 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 third language actually. 
Wow. Jeez. So, and do you think you applied any lessons from that or your brain was organized in yeah. some way because yeah, of I that? Yeah, I think so, actually, because when it's like when I started thinking about it, when I've talked to people about like, how does people ask, like, how do you know? I mean, I have to say that right now, I'm not fluent in any for any of the extra languages right now just because I don't have enough practice for any of them yeah. except for yeah. the one I'm using. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I would talk about like, yeah, it's just process. Like once I learned the process, like it's, I mean, there's, there are, there are certain challenges of just like, you just do this, this, this. And when I've been, you know, when I spent a lot of time with like beginning birders, not, it's not going to work for everybody, but I'll say like, yeah. this is how I've been better at my birding practice is at, you know, using this type of framework. It just happens quickly. Yeah. So I yeah. would say that, yes, I would, I would say that the framework that I established when learning different languages probably heavily influenced how i approach using basically approaching another huge knowledge set with mm -hmm. very yeah. special yeah. rules in a way that i could deploy quickly like so yeah it's a great question i've often you know thought of birding as like a language yeah um you know like language fluency right so when you become a skilled birder it does feel like you are responding to the responding to the input um, it like a language, like you don't have to think about it. You just kind of react. And, you know, when you're a fluent language speaker and someone says something to you in that language, you don't have to go through the process of translating it from your first language into your second language. You just you just react because that's how you your mind works. And in birding, I, I feel like, you know, a skilled birder does that, too. I see a hawk flying over. Sometimes I think about what the identification is, but a lot of times I just it feels like a red shoulder yeah. cock. Right. It, it, it's mm. kind of like a feeling. And that's mm -hmm. how I identify the bird. It's it's weird. Yeah. Although one thing I want to like also bring up here, um, which I think applies both. We always think of like birding as it's just like eyeballs and brain right. or yep. ears yeah. and brain. But it's not because like your whole neuromuscular system has to like adapt to yeah. being out. So it's like you first go out birding for the first 10 minutes. Like I can't really perceive a lot of birds. I know that they're there intellectually but it's like it takes your, <laughs> it takes a certain amount of time for you to get advice in a birding space you're like okay now oh, yeah. i am it's interesting i am yeah. now physically literally physically physiologically prepared or more ready to actually experience and observe birds yeah. and when hmm. it comes to learning a language it's like this is everyone says this it's just like you can learn it really quickly or really not really quickly but it's just like the last step is being able to force it out your mouth because there is <laughs> it, there's a whole muscle memory process of like okay well i know what the structures are but then making that connection between the the neurons in your brain and the and the muscles like in your mouth and throat is a whole other process as well so for for me like i think that birding is also an extremely physical thing like it's a physical mm -hmm. it's a meat-based thing that also happens to exist in your head um and language is very much the same thing where a lot of it's like caught up i'm for those who can't see me i'm like pointing at my head right now but a lot of it's caught up in your brain uh but then it's uh, also experienced in a very yeah. tactile way yeah well and you hear that too from folks who are learning language where they say i can read it and i can but understand I it but i can't it. speak yeah. it yeah you know that's there are parallels there I was going to say that was me learning French um, in high school and some of college. But I also realized I was dreaming in French, even though I didn't understand what was actually being said. It was embedded like it was in my brain of like those like you were saying, Martha, the, the structures and like and then the same thing happened when I was doing uh, field research when I first started learning about birds and I was also dreaming about birds that I had no clue <laughs> that's how you know you're really in it for sure <laughs> dream after dream after dream of like okay you're you're locked in like there's no getting away from this I'm officially a birder so yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely thank you so much for giving so much of your time and your thoughts about birds and birding this was that last part was a really fascinating conversation I feel like we could keep talking about that for a very long time Nick Martha, Nicole, I'll have links to all their stuff in the show notes. Please check those out. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your thoughts. And we'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, access to our archives, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us. 
and coffee if you do it by the end of the month you can get information at aba.org slash join or aba.org slash coffee promo special shout outs this week to michael belmonte of wilmington north carolina sophie badrog of annandale virginia randy and bobby fisher of milford delaware mitchell griffiths of houston texas gene leonati of columbia missouri Jarrett lewis of new york new york casey mccardle of metuchen new jersey ariana remmel of little rock arkansas and william turnbull of stewart florida all of whom recently joined the aba noted the podcast as a reason for doing so i'm sure the coffee played a role as well thank you so much hope you enjoy your coffee Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who notes that while the common raven has only been a staple in New York City since 2019 or so, the common rave has been around since at least 1990. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders if anyone noted that the rise of nesting common ravens in cities more or less corresponds with this recent COVID pandemic. Meh. Additional hook comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who note that in Espanol, raven is known as Cuervo, which begs the question... Uh, who's is agaving them that name? Mm. You can find us online at ABA.org on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I referenced Iron Maiden in that Raven conversation, which led me to investigate whether the iconic metal band has any Raven lyrics, and the answer is, of course they do. There's a lot of Raven imagery in the song Shadows of the Valley, which fits their reputation as the most ravenous rock band of all time. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Until next week.